Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is Nir Eyal, author of Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And you are listening to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on. They are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com. Marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com, and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Near Ayal, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Doug. Great to be back. Sorry that we have to be back under these circumstances, but uh, I'm doing all right nonetheless. Well, now you're in Singapore. Is that right? I am. Yeah, I'm here in Singapore. So it's early morning for me, late night for you. I appreciate you drinking so early in the morning. Well, it's five o'clock somewhere, right? I think so. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And oh gosh, since you're in Singapore, I would, I guess I should have made myself a Singapore sling. I've always wanted to have one that's of those. Right. <laughs> well, that's mandatory. Actually, that's what I'm drinking right now at eight in the morning. Uh, it's the, the national drink. It's I want one of orange juice to drink. I want to party with you. So, <laughs> why are you in? Singapore? Because my sense was that you lived in uh, Manhattan, in New York City. And that's why I'm in Singapore. <laughs> because uh, when this, let's see, I think it was early March, uh, we were, uh, my wife and I were walking around Manhattan in early March, and we were wearing masks because um, that's the right thing to do. <laughs> and back in early March, People were looking at us funny and saying, you don't need to wear masks. And, uh, you know, giving my, our neighbors thought we were overreacting. And uh, we didn't think we were overreacting. Uh, and we, you know, I remember the day that uh, Trump gave that state of the, or not state of the, uh, the televised address and the NBA canceled the season and Tom Hanks was diagnosed. It was all March 13th. That was the date I remember. Oh. And that day I decided, you know, um, this isn't going to look good for New York City, unfortunately. This is going to be a tough time. And uh, we were worried that, you know, the hospital capacity might uh, might be stretched thin. And uh, maybe we didn't want to be a burden on that hospital capacity. So I looked up some tickets and we looked for where might be a, a, a nice place to take a little vacation. And uh, we came up with Singapore. And uh, so we've been here for a little over two months. My and goodness. so we were kind of hanging out. But, uh, you know, we figured if we're overreacting, well, then so be it. If not, then we're taking a little vacation. So uh, this is not too different from what my normal life looks like. I mean, we, um, other than being in Singapore, I still have my daily routine of writing and homeschooling my daughter. You know, that's we've been homeschooling for five years now, and I've been working from home now for longer than that. So this isn't too different. I uh, just happened to do it in a different room. Had you been to Singapore before? Yeah, yeah, I've been here several times on business, and uh, I love it here. So it's a, it's, it's kind of Manhattan of of Asia. It's got that same vibe of uh, very diverse, uh, lots of different cultures in this in this tiny place of a melting pot. So yeah, I, I really enjoy it here. Well, is somebody back in Manhattan like feeding the cat and all that? 
Uh, yeah, actually, funny you should say that. We have a, a fish. My daughter has a pet fish that our neighbor has been kind enough to uh, f- to change the water. And uh, we left a little automatic feeder for the fish. And he's holding up fine. Wow. Boy, you were really ahead of things. You are. You must be the one of the smartest people. And they, I guess everyone who said you don't need a mask, you're overreacting. Yeah, how's that working out for you? Yeah, you know, I, I really, you know, I wrote an article actually about this because this was so frustrating um, that that the this even the CDC and the Surgeon General I think were giving bad advice in the United States early on because you know we 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 looked around. I remember when we got off the plane uh, uh, to to connect to the flight into Singapore, we had to fly through Tokyo, and as soon as we got off the plane to catch our connector flight, my daughter said, "Daddy, look, everyone here is wearing masks," uh, and that was in stark contrast to when we left. Uh, Newark Airport. I remember we 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 got through security, and there, first of all, very few people were wearing masks. And even I remember we saw this group of pilots and flight attendants hugging and kissing and shaking hands as if nothing was happening. None of them were wearing masks. And uh, you know, 180 degree difference from when we landed in Asia, where here in Singapore, it's it's right now and it has been for for quite some time. There's a $300 fine for every anyone who doesn't cover their face outdoors. And I I, I really think more and more of the uh, the studies are are showing us that you know we can really beat this thing just by wearing masks alone. And so the Asian countries, you know, when you look at Taiwan, uh, Korea, Japan, Singapore. It's it's almost a hundred percent compliance with with covering your face, not so that you don't get sick, but so that if you are infected but asymptomatic, you don't get others sick. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think this is going to turn out in hindsight to have been uh, it, as close to the magic bullet as we found. Now I don't think that's the only reason that these countries are are doing better, um, but I think that's going to be in retrospect one of the main reasons. Well, they had more experience, it seems. Right. Yeah. So I think they were just more familiar with it, and people would think, "Oh, some of these uh, they were they just used to see them." I think they might have even you might have even seen more of uh, maybe tourists in the United States were wearing masks, and now I think they were just more familiar with with how this works and 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 what to do. So, near y'all, last Friday I published episode two hundred and eighty, and. You were a very, very early supporter of the Marketing Book Podcast, and I really appreciate that. You were episode 16, May of 2015, and then you were recent, more recently on for episode 244 in September of 2019 when Indistractable came out. And for episode 16, we talked about your other bestseller, Hooked. So for those people that have uh, that this may be the first time they're listening and they haven't had a chance to go back and, and listen to those episodes, tell us who you are and and what you do. Yeah, well, and first of all, thank you for having me on and having me on now my third time here. I know this isn't this is a special episode, but still, I'll, I'll I'll put it as a as a notch in my belt. It's always been such a pleasure to to maintain our friendship and kind of to see your success as as the podcast has grown. It's it's really an amazing service you're doing. I I remember wishing for something like this years ago uh, when I was in business school, thinking, "Oh my gosh, there's so many great business authors out there and business books. I, I wish there was a way to to hear from them." But I didn't want to do it. Oh <laughs> right. Kind of well, say, wait no, a minute. You just mentioned <laughs> you were in business school, and that was the Stanford. Graduate School of Business. So, of course, now we have to tell the Marketing Book Podcast joke. There's been more authors on the show with Stanford degrees than from any other school. So, Is that right? Yeah. It must be the largest university in the world. Or, <laughs> or it's part of the application process where you agree to write a book, any book, uh, <laughs> in order to uh, in order to uh, graduate. But there's been there have been so many. And then you were also a um, you were a lecturer there as well, weren't you? That's right. Yeah, I lectured there for many years, and then I moved over to the design school, the Hasselplatner Institute of Design at Stanford as well, the D School. Uh, yeah, so I have, I have pretty deep roots over there as well. Okay, so I interrupted you. You were going to share more about Nereal. Yeah. So let's see. So my background, so I'm what you call a behavioral designer. So I help companies build the kind of products that uh, change human behavior and habits for good. Uh, so that was the goal of my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. That came out of a class that I taught at Stanford on how to uh, design user behavior. And the idea, of course, is to help people build healthy habits in their life. So 
Um, companies like Kahoot, the world's largest educational software, uses the Hooked model to get kids hooked onto in-classroom learning. Uh, companies like Fitbod get people hooked to exercise. Uh, I've worked with companies like the New York Times to get people hooked to engaging with local media. So there's, there's all kinds of ways that we can use the same tactics that companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack. The, the goal of Hooked was to democratize those techniques so that we can all build the kind of products that get people hooked to healthy habits in their lives. And so uh, that's a big part of my work is, is helping people design the kind of products that people use because they want to, not because they have to. I think there's kind of an awakening that uh, in the product design community that, you know, retaining a customer is much cheaper and easier than acquiring a new one. And uh, uh, we know that, that, you know, we spend tons of money even during the acquisition process of, of, uh, you know, spending money on marketing and spammy messaging. And, you know, so the idea here is what if we could get people to engage with your product out of habit, Uh, you know, doing it with little or no conscious thought, just like they would engage with Facebook or Google or YouTube. What if they could engage with all sorts of products the same way? So that was my first book, Hooked, and uh, the book, Knock on Wood, has done much better than, than I expected. It, we, we just topped to over 250,000 copies so, uh, and, and chugging along, so that, that's been great to see. <laughs> Congratulations. And thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been used in every industry I, I could imagine. Ones that I never thought could use it are using it, so that's terrific to see. And then more recently, I wanted to explore the, the flip side of the coin. So if Hooked was about building good habits, I wanted to understand how to break bad habits. And so that's what Indistractable is all about. It's about uh, you know how do you get unhooked, so to speak, from the products and services that maybe distract us. So it wasn't, you know, originally I thought I was going to call Indistractable unhooked, uh, but I didn't because it's really not talking about the same kind of products. The audience is different. Hooked is for people, it's not for Facebook and, and uh, the gaming companies and those guys. They, they already know these techniques. Frankly, <laughs> I, I learned from them, right? I didn't invent these techniques. I, I codified them so that we could all use them, not just the social media companies and the video game companies. Um, so Indistractable is really about how do, we, uh, how do we stop getting distracted from all sorts of things. And I, I thought the book was just going to be about the technology side of it, but actually it, it turned out to be a much deeper problem uh, it turns out actually that the number one source of distraction in the modern American workplace is not emails, it's not your computer, it's not your phone, it's other people. <laughs> 80% of survey respondents said the number one source of distraction was inter-office chatter. <laughs> that was the biggest distraction. So it's not necessarily just technology that distracts us. And so that's what I go into in Indistractable is the deeper psychology of distraction in all its many forms. I think about your book, Indistractable, almost every day, damn it. <laughs> you've, you've wormed yourself into my subconscious, but it seems like it's come up even more. I mean, I, I say that with love because it is such a powerful book and it made me appreciate uh, the addictiveness and, or, or, the, or, the, or how, as you say, the number one superpower in the 21st century is your ability to keep from being distracted. And I, I think I'm thinking about that book even more. And it has to do, and I can't put my finger on it, but with this, all this remote working and working from home, I, we, our office has been empty for, well, has been vacated for two months now. And I, you know, I've been working at home. I've swung by a couple times to check the mail before I <laughs> changed the forwarding address. But, uh, it's been a whole different set of, uh, of of routines for me, and I think actually for me it's really rather easy. We don't have small children like you do, and uh, I'm in a line of work where we can do things more really almost seamlessly from from uh, you know working remotely. But mm-hmm. has there been a? It seems like there's been a big challenge for a lot of people with distraction, maybe it's caused by having their whole routines upended. What, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think that, that now, you know, it's it, on the back end to prove your point. I, we've actually seen uh, a big spike in book sales for Indistractable since this whole Corona crisis. 
Uh, and I think it's for exactly the same reason that that you're describing. There's this there's this new challenge that many people who thought they could handle distraction, they had their routines down, uh, they they knew what they were scheduled to do, they kind of had their their work life set up a certain way, and then this thing comes along and all that's been disrupted. And so now we have to figure out how to rearrange our lives with these new challenges. And you're not alone. I mean, many many people, many more people now are struggling with distraction. And I think that's for two big reasons. Number one has to do with with schedules and how, you know, we know there's a lot of research that shows that we operate better under constraints that, uh, that, 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 you know, Kierkegaard has this wonderful quote. He said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. That Mm. in some situations, have too much freedom, when we have too much white space, when we don't have the constraints in our day that were provided by get the kids out of bed, feed them breakfast, get them to school, go go to work, have that meeting, because we're working from home and don't have those constraints, don't have that schedule in our life, it can be quite dizzying, right? It can it can cause anxiety. It can cause us to, to have to reassess what our life should look like because we don't have that structure that was imposed upon us by uh, having to go work somewhere in an office and 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 on a schedule, and so that can be that that that's caused I think a lot of of distraction, uh, the absence of those constraints. The other big factor, you know, in the book I talk quite a bit about how the underlying trigger for distraction is not what most people think it is. It's not the what we call the external triggers, which are the pings and dings and rings from our phones and computers, that's actually not the leading cause of distraction. The leading cause of distraction are what we call the internal triggers. The internal triggers are uncomfortable psychological states that we seek to escape from. And I think this is why Indistractable is different from any other personal productivity or time management book out there because it really gets to the heart of why we are distracted. Why do we procrastinate? It's not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. It's that we just don't have the tools to deal with emotional discomfort in a healthier manner, whether that's boredom or loneliness, fatigue, stress, anxiety. Fundamentally, procrastination and distraction is always an emotion regulation problem. And so that's why it's so important to understand. I think one of the key phrases or takeaways from the book is that Time management is pain management. And and I'm not necessarily advocating for mindfulness and yoga and meditation. That's great if it works for you. But I I kind of give many more, uh, many additional practical tips. I don't really cover meditation and that stuff because I think it's been kind of beaten to death. But I give people very practical tips for how to deal with that discomfort in a healthier manner so that it leads us to traction rather than distraction. But to answer your question, when you add fuel to the fire and now add even more anxiety, more stress, more uncertainty to our lives now during this corona crisis, people are even more likely to seek escape from that additional uh, psychological stress, right? Because now the world is a more uncertain place. They're more fearful. They're more stressed. They're more anxious. That prompts us to look for even more distraction, whether it's checking the news constantly or browsing Twitter feeds or watching TV, something to take our mind off of this stress to give us a sense of control and agency where we feel we are lacking that control and agency. This is a big reason why so many more people feel distracted today. And that is what you mean by time management is actually pain management. Can you say more about that That pain? What, what you mean by pain? Sure. So it's it's not physical pain. It's it's emotional pain, uh, and it's something that you know most people don't recognize is occurring throughout their day. But you know, whatever the distraction might be, whatever is taking you off track from what you want to do with your time, whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, it doesn't really matter. Fundamentally, the reason we are looking for escape is always to take our mind off of an uncomfortable emotional state. So that's what those internal triggers are all about. It's that uncomfortable emotion, the feeling that we don't know how to deal with in another way other than let me just check my phone or let me just check email or let me just take my mind off it one way or the other. In particular, when it comes to uh, the, the, the average business person, interestingly enough, we tend to distract ourselves 
in a way we don't even realize is distracting ourselves, right? So when you talk, you know, when I usually talk to people about distraction, they think, oh, distractions are, you know, the news or Facebook or video games or YouTube. But actually what we find is, is the vehicle to escape these uncomfortable internal triggers. Even if you're, you know, a, a type A personality and you, you're really busy and you feel like you, you get to work and, you know, you're very productive, it tends to actually be the things that I call pseudo work. So this, this was what would happen to me all the time before I started this line of research. I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, now I'm going to get to work. I'm not going to let myself procrastinate. I'm not going to get distracted. I got to get started on that big proposal or that presentation, whatever the case might be, or I need to finish this blog post. Here I go. I'm going to get started. I got to get to work. I'm going to start right now. But first, let me check email. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would justify that saying, well, you know, I got to check email at some point right? It's on my to-do list. Let me just finish this one thing on my to-do list real quick. Let me just check that Slack channel. That's work-related. That's a work-related task, right? No, it's just as much of a distraction as playing video games if it's not what you plan to do with your time. And so that's why this is so important, I think, is because we, we trick ourselves. We allow distraction to fool us into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. And that, that's really the understanding that I want to, uh, to, to proselytize here is to understand what is traction and what is distraction for, for your entire day. That's what's so important to understand here so that we can make sure we know the difference so that we do the, the acts of traction that move us towards what we want in life, uh, that, that pull us towards the values that we have and the person we want to become versus everything else that is a distraction from that. So being in Singapore... And, and outside where you normally live in New York, uh, what effect has that had on you and your, <clears throat> I guess, all of us seem to be doing a lot of thinking these days. What about mm-hmm. you? Well, you know, I, I, my vehicle for thinking and reflection has always been my writing. And uh, I, I'll tell you, I think it's it's a competitive advantage that a lot of people don't realize. Um, I'll be honest with you, Doug. You know, I, I get paid... Uh, an embarrassing amount of money uh, to do consulting per hour. My hourly rate is, is it's, I'm embarrassed to, to admit uh, how high it is. And I do that because I want to protect my time to do other things. But I'll tell you the reason uh, people call me and I do consulting work for them, you know, 90% of the time I spend with people, uh, w- whether it was an in-person meeting or on a phone call, 90% of the time, I'm not talking. I'm listening. And it's amazing, you know, the, if 90% of the time is the other person thinking out loud or talking through a problem they're having, you know, I'll let you in on a little secret for everyone li- uh, listening right now. You know, you don't need to pay me or anyone else thousands of dollars. You can solve your own problems, you know, not maybe not all of them. Sometimes you do need an expert to help, but people don't realize how many of their problems they could solve for themselves if they just made time to think, right? Whether it's, you know, if you're talking to me versus talking to yourself, it's actually not that big of a difference (laughs) if 90% of the time you're the one doing the talking. So for me, writing and reflection is, is, is my secret weapon. And so few people make the time for reflection. It doesn't necessarily have to be through writing. For me, you know, I, I write in order to think. That's the medium I use to think. But it can be, a, 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 you know, other mediums. Uh, you know, you, you can record yourself talking into uh, a notes app or, you know, there's many, many different ways that you can reflect. But I think that time for reflection is incredibly important. And almost nobody makes time to think these days, right? Almost nobody is, is setting aside the time to process, to reflect. And I, I, I think that that's a, a real missed opportunity. Man, this conversation is going to be really expensive for me. <laughs> you get a you get a discount. You get a friend's fee. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I hope everyone appreciates that. What are some other ways that people can, besides writing, which is uh, and even journaling, um, what are some other ways that people can 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 learn to think more, like you're describing? Well, I think that the most important thing is to make time for it mm. um, and, and not using to-do lists. <laughs> One of the things I, I rant about a bit uh, is that what I call the tyranny of the to-do lists. 
And this is, I know many of your audience is probably gonna, going to uh, disagree with me on this because I'm kind of killing a sacred cow here. But I, I think to-do lists are destroying most people's productivity. Uh, you know, they, they read some Cliff Notes version of some productivity book. And the one, the one thing they take out of it is, oh, I got to keep to-do lists. And they don't realize how bad it is for your psychological well-being. Let, let me explain. You know, we know one of the principles that we, we've come to understand, uh, particularly over the past few years with, with a lot of new research coming out around this, is that, that behavior change is identity change. And we have to be very careful about the identity we cement for ourselves. Because whatever you tell yourself, you will believe. So if you tell yourself, I have a short attention span, or I'm not very good at this, or that's the kind of person I am, well, then you'll believe it, whether it's true or not. And so we have to be very careful about anything that reinforces an identity we don't like. And I think to-do lists do this in spades. So you know, there's a, there's a simple question I ask people who are, who are uh, proponents of to-do lists, and I always know the answer. The question is, when was the last time you didn't finish everything on your to-do list? When was the last time you didn't finish everything on your to-do list? And if you keep a to-do list, ask yourself honestly the same question. 100% of the time, I've never heard anyone say otherwise. Yeah, it never say, goes away. Exactly. <laughs> oh, when was the last time I didn't finish everything on my to-do list? Oh, today and yesterday. And Probably the last time I had zero inbox on my, on yeah, my uh, exactly. email. It's never ending. And so why do we keep adhering religiously to this technique that doesn't actually seem to ever end? It doesn't give us that peace of mind of saying, I finished everything on my to-do list. It just goes on and on and on. And, and so I, that's why I think you know, that self-image is really dangerous because what kind of self-image do we reinforce for ourselves if day after day we say we're going to do these things, right? We list out all the to-dos and we don't finish them you're reinforcing a self-image that you don't do what you say you are going to do. And okay, maybe it doesn't matter one day or the second day, but if you do this day after day, month after month, year after year, it begins to take a toll. You begin to accept the fact, that's okay, I can promise myself I'll do something and it's all right if I don't do it. And that is cancer to your productivity and your well-being. And so that's why I, I'm really not a fan of, of the way most people keep to-do lists. There's nothing wrong with a temporary place to store the things you need to get done. That's fine, but it shouldn't guide your day. That's where I think it's misused. Hmm. You know, that's interesting. It's got me, <clears throat> once again, you've got me doing something I hate to do, which is think. And my damn wife, it. <laughs> <laughs> damn it, y'all, but my wife is a, a competitive equestrian, you know, horseback person, horse, horse riding person. And I have a, a motorcycle and it, it occurs to me that both of those pursuits, when you get on the horse or you get on the motorcycle, you, I, I'm all alone. I don't have anything I'm listening to. I'm, we're both concentrating and that seems to be, I don't know, maybe it's almost like we're, I, I'm in, when I'm in the shower, where I'm not uh, distracted, and there's something about something. There's something about doing, spending a few hours like that, which makes me wonder if that's where I'm finally allowed to do some thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and I get the that. That reminds me. One of the places that I uh, come up with my best ideas is during long walks or runs. Uh, just having the time to let myself think, you know, so I think what it demonstrates is you can, you can, it doesn't have to just be in the five minutes that you're in the shower. You can, you can create those spaces without distraction. You can put that time in your schedule, in your day to give yourself that time to think, uh, by blocking out the distractions, by giving yourself that same creative time. You know, it's, it's only when we give ourselves that time to think that we can produce our best work. And if we think about it for knowledge workers, you know, what is our output? What do we do for a living? It's pretty clear, you know, if, if, you, if you make stuff, if you if work with your hands, if you're a laborer, like let's say you're a baker. Well, if you come to a baker and say, okay, I need 100 loaves of bread, that's the output. Well, then the baker will say, well, I need input, right? I need the flour, I need the yeast, I need the sugar, I need the salt, I need all the ingredients, the input to make the output. But when it comes to knowledge work, you know, because of the tyranny of the to-do list, all we think about is the output, 
but we don't think about the input. Well, what's our input? If knowledge workers output, there's only one thing that we all do. If you're a knowledge worker, if, if you primarily work with your brain, uh, your job is to come up with novel solutions to hard problems. That's the definition of knowledge work. You come up with knowledge, novel solutions to hard problems, whether you're in marketing or, or an entrepreneur or an engineer, that's what you do. Now, what's the input? The input is only two ingredients. It's time and attention. That's it. With those two ingredients, you can f- figure out those novel solutions to hard problems. But so many of us are reacting all day long, right? Reacting to emails, reacting to Slack notifications, reacting to meetings, that we have no time for the reflection that's required to do our best work. Hmm. And that is why the superpower of the 21st century is your ability to keep from getting distracted. That's Probably more than anything else in the book, that really stuck with me because the book explained uh, why. And you just you just said it's time and attention, but I think it's attention even more than mm. uh, than the time. So, right, but right. you know, what do I know? So, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Because you you don't realize that that that's the accelerant, right? You you can with a with a little bit of time, but focused attention. You can do so much. And you're absolutely right, Doug. There's no area of your life that this doesn't impact, whether it's, of course, your professional life, clearly. We talked about that already. But what about your personal life, right? With time and attention, this is how we get the best out of our relationships. This is how we're fully present with the people we love. When it comes to our physical health, same story. You know What, what keeps us from doing the things we know we should do? Everybody knows how to get in shape. You got to exercise. You got to move around. You got to eat right. Does anybody not know this? We don't need to buy diet books to tell us this. Why don't we do it? We don't do it because we don't put in the time and attention because we get distracted. So interesting. And I, the place where I worked out, it shut down and I finally just uh, discontinued the membership. And, but I had to get a spin bike because uh, I, I love getting on the spin bike. And so I went to order one. I you know, two months ago, it couldn't couldn't be found, couldn't be bought. But oh, no. one is showing up on Wednesday finally. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you know, good things come to those who wait. Meanwhile, I've been going on these ninety minute walks lately, and actually, I couldn't do as much exercising because I had my my shoulder operated on. So I guess it was five days. No, March eighteenth. I think I had the last elective surgery in the United States. It was a a shoulder. It a, rotator cuff repair, which was very successful. The next day they said no more surgeries. <laughs> so oh, wow. I couldn't, um, so I, you know, I, everything, everything was great, but I couldn't, I, you know, so I was, I was going on these long walks with a, my arm in a sling and, uh, then, you know, but now I'm at the point where I can get on the bike and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm almost thinking, you know what, maybe I won't even have any earphones in because that's, that's I think that's something that's distracting me is I'm I'm listening to other things. But I don't know. We'll 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 have to see. Actually, when I'm on a spin bike, I start listening to a, an hour long spin class that's on iTunes. <laughs> so mm. but otherwise, yeah, it's uh oh man, I I wish I hadn't I wish we hadn't started this conversation. No, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. You know what? That's that's interesting you say that. A lot of folks um, it's, it, you know, there's some techniques in the book that, that we do require some heavy lifting. Uh, for example, uh, I advocate time boxing, which is not something I made up. It's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Basically you're blocking out the time in your calendar to do what you say you're going to do. And this has been validated in thousands of peer reviewed studies. This is not something that one person invented, but it is consistently a finding throughout the, 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 uh, peer reviewed studies that I, that I research that this technique of, of making what's called an implementation intention, planning out the time to do what you say you're going to do, is incredibly effective. And we all kind of know that this is common sense. Now, I try and help people. One, I advocate for it. I tell you why it's such a great technique. Uh, and I try and make it as easy as possible. But it's, it's funny, actually, how frequently I can see this look on people's faces that they realize, wait a minute, what this guy is telling me is actually going to work, which means... I have to actually do the thing <laughs> I said I would do. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, yeah. That's uh, that's funny. But what I'm thinking is that when I've been going on these 90-minute walks until this uh, bike shows up and I can get back to doing what I normally do, I've been listening to podcasts. 
Yeah. I'm thinking it might be even better if I went for a 90-minute walk and didn't listen to anything. Now, that that doesn't apply to you, listener. You need to be listening to the Marketing Book <laughs> Podcast. Exactly. Don't and Nariel's going to back me up on that. Just listen to exactly. uh, episodes uh, 16 and 244, and uh, that's all you need to know. But uh, <laughs> right. those are fine. No, but I think it actually brings up a really good point because I think it's very, the knee jerk reaction is to say, oh, you know, uh, Facebook is wasting all my time. I'm going to stop with Facebook or I'm going to stop listening to podcasts. And what I advocate for, you know, a lot of other people will tell you, uh, well, actually not that many, but some other people who write in this genre will say, it's the technology's fault. Stop using the technology. The technology is melting your brain. Go on a digital detox. And that's just silly uh, because I don't think it's about the technology per se. It's about the difference between traction and distraction. If you want to listen to the podcast during your walk, that's what you're doing with intent, with the keyword here being forethought, right? That you do that in advance, you decide that's what you want to do. That's wonderful. It's beautiful. Do it. Enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with it, but make sure it's with forethought so that it's not about, oh, I need an escape right now because I don't want to do the difficult task. Therefore, I'm going to escape through my email, through my Slack channels, through whatever, the news, Facebook. That's the difference. The difference between traction and distraction is one word, and that word is forethought. So maybe you'll go on a walk and say, you know what? This is really great. I like the time to think. But after about you know, 45 minutes, an hour, that's enough for me. That's good. I'm going to put that time in my day. And then the next time I'm going to... Uh, you know, make sure I do have time for those podcasts because podcasts, I mean, especially yours, there, there's so much wonderful content that we don't want to miss out on that is, it does enhance our life, again, if it's done with forethought and intent. Yeah, so I think I, what I'm going to do is an experiment where I don't have many uh, headphones or anything like that when I'm walking around just to see how it goes because, again, it brings me back to those, you know, hours-long motorcycle rides where you can't listen to anything and you're just concentrating, you're thinking, and it's it, it seems like I will have gone much longer than I actually did because it was an, it was an escape and it was free of, of distractions. So, mm-hmm. near how long do you think you're going to remain in Singapore there? Uh, not too much longer. You know, I'm pretty optimistic. It really looks like we're turning the corner. Hopefully that will uh, continue. Uh, it looks like New York's getting better. So we're kind of monitoring the situation. Uh, it, it looks like now things are, at least there's a plan for reopening. So it's, it's, as soon as things are safe and we don't think we would be a burden on the healthcare system there in New York City, uh, then, uh, you know, if we did get sick, hopefully we won't. But if we did, we want to make sure that we wouldn't be a burden on the system, that it's not overloaded. So I would say maybe another month or so. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. <laughs> there was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal I just saw over the, a couple of days ago about traveling. And it was talking about, you know, what things really are uh, a risk and, and what things are, are not such a risk. And uh, it was interesting. It's always uh, very surprising. They were saying that some of the airline travels actually um, I, not as much of a risk as I, I had thought it was. So, yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, the the plane uh, flying on an airplane. You mean it's not? Is you're saying it's not that bad of a risk? Yeah, I think that's what it was. It said, um, well, it was comparing uh, several different things, but it was talking about uh, airline travel. So I don't know. That's I don't really want to get on a plane right now. I'm just. I guess I'm. Yeah. I guess I want to. I'm not. A, I don't want to be an early adopter to use a Jeffrey Moore term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> see, I, I haven't flown since uh, March 13th um, or so, I, I guess March 15th, um, but it'd be interesting to see. I don't know what it's like these days. I, I heard the planes are are packed again, that there are, people are sitting cheek to jowl again on, on these flights, which does not sound very attractive to me quite yet. Wow, yeah. Well, is there anything that's really uh, still worrying you or, or concerning you? Uh, about corona or about yeah. uh, distress? About this, uh, this uh, new era we've entered. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's there's you know I'm I'm uh, maybe I'm uh, too optimistic. I would say I'm a realist, but I'm 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 optimistic. I think that you know that there's a silver lining to any potential crisis, and I I, I think that there a lot of good is going to come out of this. Of course, it's not going to be uh, uh, worth it in terms of the life lost. It's a terrible human toll, and of course, that's incredibly tragic. Um, but it does, you know, these type of situations do cause us to refocus on, uh, on new opportunities. And so I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm fairly optimistic. You know, I think we are incredibly adaptable as a species that we will find, um, you know, ways out of this that, that leave us better than before. And, um, so I think there'll be a lot of good that comes out of it. You know, I, I, I think if, if you're asking me what concerns me, I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of leadership lessons that have been very interesting to watch uh, between comparing Singapore and the United States. You know, in Singapore, uh, of course, it's a very, it's a much smaller com- country. It's, I think, five and a half million versus 300 million in the United States. But it's been really interesting to see the, the leadership here uh, communicate a consistent message uh, from top down. Uh, of, you know, okay, here's what we're going to do. It's based on the best science we know. We may be wrong, but this is what we're going to do. And and it's interesting when there is that consistent message, how in a time of crisis, people lock arms and, and, and do it, right? They say, we're going to wear face masks and everybody does it. right? And and they, they, they do that. Um, And there's, there's, it's very interesting to see how different the, the, the confusion level here is uh, versus in other parts of the world. It's it's pretty inspiring how uh, how they're doing it here of saying, look, this is the consistent message and they repeat it over and over again. They make it as simple as possible. And this goes back to some of what I taught in Hooked around how important cognitive load is, that uh, when people uh, are confused or there's a message that's muddled or uncertain, uh, they don't, They you know, you would think that you would, you could tell people, well, make up your own mind right? Look at the facts and you make up your mind. And what turns, what typically happens is they just shut down. People will default to their existing habits and they won't make the change as opposed to, you know, when, when you give a very consistent message and say, here are the guidelines, here's what we are going to do. They're much more likely to, to take that advice. Hmm. Interesting. I, I'm also wondering though, is that like so many countries where there's a slightly more uh, homogenous culture? Actually, Singapore is the opposite. Singapore is a, uh, a, a not at all homogenous culture. You have uh, Malaysians, you have Muslims, you have Christians, you have chi- a, a huge Chinese population, you have people of uh, European heritage. It's uh, it's a very very diverse population. Uh, the 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 connecting the connective tissue is uh, is the nation state and is the is trust. I think in the government there is a very very high level of trust, particularly when it comes to these type of healthcare issues, uh, you know, er- every country has its issues and no place is perfect by, by any stretch of the imagination, but there is a high degree of trust in the government. And when the government says, here's what we're going to do, uh, then particularly around these health related issues, uh, p- there, there's a, there's a high, high degree of, of trust in what the government says. Well, I have no concept for <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm a kidder. Hey, listen, I, I just looked it up while we were talking, and it was. I'll include a link uh, to this Wall Street Journal article. Folks may need a um, a subscription to read it, but it was on your episode's show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com. And the article's in the Wall Street Journal. It is, is it safe to travel again? Your coronavirus questions answered. And as I scroll down here, it said, should I avoid flying altogether? And it says health authorities, including the Center for Disease Control, maintain that the risk of infection on airplanes is low. Mm. So there's all other extenuating uh, factors, but you know if you should wear a mask on a flight. So I don't know. I'll, and of course, I'll send it to you. But I, I, I it's just I, I find that fascinating. And this is at a time where I'm really I've really cut back on my news consumption. Mm. Just for my own uh, my own mental health. So yeah, how did you handle that? By the way, I'm curious. What what did you used to do, and why did you pre- why did you pre- uh, precipitate that that change on your news consumption? And what did you do differently? Well, I had always been um, ever since. Well, <clears throat> I guess your books, <laughs> and there was another book by Scott Adams called Loser Think about uh-huh. where he explains the business model of of television networks and i had not been watching really any television news and in fact uh, when i was at this gym they would have a bank of tvs and often i was the only person there i would purposefully go up and change the television news i would put on like a sports channel or a you know a, a home and garden show or something like that just because i'm so suspicious of news uh, television news mm-hmm. excuse me um mm-hmm. because they are trying to incite whatever that brain chemical is that keeps people in the casinos i don't know if it's uh, adrenaline mm-hmm. or uh, or um 
or what, but they're just trying to keep you keep, they're trying to get you fired up. And then in Scott Adams book, he explained that even further about how they are trying to get you outraged uh, so that you'll continue to watch the TV commercials. And he says, you know, you can't fault them. It, it works for them. So I've, I've long been on sort of this, you know, not had any, and we don't have cable TV anymore. So it's, I, I've, I've turned that off, but, but when I, after I had the shoulder surgery, I may have been looking at a little bit of television uh, and, um, when all this, so I had the surgery and then I started with the, uh, the, the quarantine all started all at the same time. So I was kind of watching the news kind of like, like where I live on the U S East coast. There's often, you know, hurricanes certain times of the year and everyone suddenly watches the news. So mm-hmm. I was doing that a bit. And then I was reminded of why it's, it, it seems so unproductive and it just didn't seem like there was any, 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 any news, any, any developments. So then I was reading news online and I, I just started doing that less and less. I just, I guess what happened was I noticed that I felt better when I wasn't consuming a bunch of news. And <clears throat> there's an, a great article by Ryan Holiday from about two years ago where he said something like, for the love of God, please stop watching news. And he was explaining, yeah. which, which I wasn't really doing much again, but he was saying, you know, the best thing is to consume news that's been out there for 24 hours. Don't yeah, yeah. try to uh, follow breaking news because it all needs to digest. And one of the, again, one of the, the deadly temptations of news is to try to be first rather than, than accurate. So that I just feel better when I'm not consuming all that, you know, all, all this new news, which is, which is uh, ubiquitous. But the other thing was I spoke to an author in the same, hopefully limited time series, <laughs> authors in quarantine, getting cocktails, Joey Coleman. And he was saying, when you do consume news, don't don't consume any news unless you can read it, mm. and try to consume half your news from outside the country you're in. Hmm, I like that. So you're yeah. certainly uh, able to do that. So I've been trying to you know follow news from from foreign sources, and now I'm probably going to have to check out some of the uh, Singapore. I guess I'm sure there must be some English language uh, news yeah, from oh, Singapore. Yeah. So mm. anyway, yeah, it's just um, again. That book of yours. <laughs> <laughs> it stuck with you. I love it. That's yes. Fantastic. Yes. Let Dang it. Another, let me add another a tip that uh, you might find helpful. Maybe some of your listeners might as well. And this I learned. Uh, uh, James Clear is a friend of mine. I don't know if you read his book, Atomic Habits. Uh, pretty, I, I think pretty much everyone has read that book. <laughs> uh, but he, he did something really uh, insightful that I, I've since adopted as well that uh, – the, I agree with Ryan Holiday. He's also a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I, I agree that you, the, the news shouldn't be anything that's breaking uh, because it doesn't, you know, if it's really a disaster, you're going to hear about it one way or the other. And if it's not, it's probably a made up disaster. Right. And, and what the, the, yes. the, the, the trouble is that we don't even realize it. But what we're doing back to what we talked about earlier around those internal triggers is that for many people consuming the news becomes a habit of distraction because we want to think about somebody else's problems halfway across the world we can't do anything about. I mean, it's it's tragic, many of the things that are in the news. But again, not only is the business model designed to perpetuate the rage and the uh, fear and the terror, uh, but in fact, the, the reason that it gets us, the deeper psychology around why that business model works is because we use it as a vehicle to escape our lives. Right. That if I think about somebody else's problems, that means I don't have to think about my own problems. And that's when it's really destructive and not productive. So the the technique that that um, that that James shared with me, his practice that I've since adopted is that uh, he doesn't go to, uh, of course, CNN or Fox News or, or even The New York Times, even, you know, the more credible, so to speak, publications. Instead, what he does and what I do now is that every morning to check the news because I want to see what's happening in the world. I think it's inf- it's good to be informed of what's going on. I go to Wikipedia, and Wikipedia has a page called Current Events, and they will summarize uh, in, you know, maybe 150, 200 words what happened. And so if you go once a day or once a week or even once a month, they even have, you know, what are the most important things that happened last month? Uh, and that's enough, <laughs> right? Because it's from an international perspective. It tells you generally what's happening. It's not the deep analysis. For the deep analysis, you need to go to other sources. But it's not the the. It's not designed to get you to keep clicking away because that's not their business model. It's just an inform. It just to keep you informed on what's what's the most important things that happened. 
I did not know about that. And I'm looking at it here. Wikipedia, current events. Interesting. Wow. Thank you, Nir. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. that. Well, listen, Nir, I, I just have to – I've, I've had a cocktail here, not a uh, Singapore sling, but I just have to ask one last Nir Ayal question. You've written Hooked. You've written Indistractable. Do you no longer feel pressure to write any more books? <laughs> well, I don't feel pressure. I do have interest. Uh, you know, I, it's funny you should say that, actually. Uh, now that I do less traveling and uh, I have some more time opened up in my calendar, I've been thinking about what the next book will be. And I, I came up with uh, about eight, eight or nine different book title ideas that I'd love to explore. And so the way I write is not... I don't write what I know. I write what I want to know. And that's why it takes me so long to write a book is that, you know, many times I have an idea for a, a question I want answered. That's why I write my books because I want the answer to a question in, uh, that I'm, I'm struggling with in my own life. And nine times out of 10, somebody else has written a great book on the topic and I don't need to write it because they solved the, the problem for me. It's only one every five years or so that uh, I'll come up with a problem that I read other people's books about. They don't either. They, they either don't address the the problem directly, or the solutions they have don't really work in real life. Uh, and so that's when I'm inspired to go ahead and figure it out for myself with a new line of research. So I would love to keep writing books every five years, hopefully for the rest of my life. Uh, but that's really dependent on what kind of problems I'm struggling with. Not uh, you know, and, and that's really what guides uh, what I decide to invest my time into. Well, I'll keep a slot open for you every four years on the market. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. That reminds yeah. me of something Ryan Holiday had in his book, um, Perennial Seller, where he said, you know, you know you're an author when you can't live with yourself until you get the thing written. Meaning mm -hmm. there are a lot of people that like the idea of being an author, but uh, until you're tormented by something where you can't find the answer and you have to get it into a book, uh, that sounds like the, the situation you're in. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's when, it's when I need to answer this darn question already. <laughs> that's when right. I, I decide to invest in it, right? Well, uh, Nir, I really appreciate the opportunity to catch up with you. And I hope that you and your family and, and uh, everyone in your world continues to stay uh, healthy and safe. And I hope that uh, when another book comes along, that you'll consider another visit to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure. And, and it shouldn't even wait till the next book. There's always something interesting to talk about. So anytime, I'm always happy to do it. It's so great talking to you, Doug. Thanks very much. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.